holy and errant word in hand. Turn with me once again to Acts chapter 9, where today we will be studying verse 19. I guess you can say B, 19 and a half, to verse 31. So that's uh, Acts, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 31. Hear now the word of God. <clears throat> For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, he being Saul of Tarsus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who uh, called upon his name? And, uh, and, and has he not come here for, for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, and their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him uh, to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed, with, uh, disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned, learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. I think every Christmas, every parent's child gets at least uh, one gift that just worries the parent half to death. Just bugs the tar of them. It's usually something kind of noisy. I remember I was young, I got a drum set that was 100% what it was that probably drove my dad out of his mind. Well, this year, my kids got something that went beyond just annoying their parents. They got a gift this year that nearly sent their parents to prison. Someone, Hillary and I, we, 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 we can't piece together, so it's one of you, sorry, but you almost sent us to jail, gave our kids a stack of fake money that looks ridiculously real. When I first saw this gift, I was sitting on the table. I went over there and picked it up. I thought it was just a wad of, of $100 bills. I had to go through that. I used to work in a bank, and I'm going through and looking at it. I'm like, if, I, if you handed this to me in a bank, and I wasn't paying attention, I would take it. It looks that real. Kind of a funny story. They've been playing with it outside. And some, the other day I was sitting by the sink kind of washing some dishes. And there's just $100 bills blowing down the driveway like tumbleweeds. Well, I think it was Monday. My, my wife and I, we were at Costco going to buy some groceries. And we decided that we were going to use a little bit of cash that we had. 
So Hillary reaches into her purse, pulls out a wad of money, hands it over to the cashier, and, and I'm sitting there not paying any much attention, I, but I look up and I see the cashier and another lady looking very suspiciously at one of the bills that we had handed them. And I immediately panicked, but not half as much as Hillary panicked. Now, they were very, we found favor in their eyes. We did not go to jail. We are not on probation. I am a free man right here and right now. But what this did was it uncovered a deep phobia of Hillary and myself. Neither one of us want to go to jail. <laughs> and neither one of us wanted to go to jail for something that we accidentally did or something that we did not do at all. This is a common fear, and it's a common fear because it's, it's a rational fear. We hear news reports quite often of people who have wasted away in prison for something that, as it turns out, they did not do. Our, societal, our societies create laws that help prevent this kind of thing from happening. In the U.S., we have laws like this. You have the right to an attorney. You have the right to remain silent. You have your Fifth Amendment rights. You have uh, the right to face your accuser. In Israel, you have certain rights as well. One such right that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 19 is that you cannot be convicted of a crime based on the evidence of less than two or three witnesses. Anytime you were convicted, if you were going to be brought to trial, if there weren't at least two people who saw you do it, you could not even be brought up on charges. The Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and Matthew, they both take this law in Deuteronomy 19 and they apply it to the church. Our church discipline works the same way. I can't bring you up on charges of having committed some grievous sin unless I have someone else who has also witnessed you doing this. There's a purpose for these type laws. They prevent us from falsely accusing other people. They also protect us from being accused by other people who seek to do us harm. And if that is the case for justice, shouldn't it also certainly be the case for our own conversions, for our own salvations? Shouldn't our conversion, shouldn't our faiths have some kind of witness as well? We've been going through a list of different conversions here in the book of Acts. The conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. The conversion of the apostle Paul there on the road to Damascus. What witness do we have that he was saved? What witness do we have of his conversion? This is, this is an issue that you saw throughout that text we just read. The, the saints in Damascus, they're amazed. They're astonished. They can't believe it. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, the same thing. He appears, he appears there before the churches and everybody's afraid of him. Is it true? Has the persecutor of the church become an apostle or the one that he attempted to, to kill? There must be some evidence, not just for the church, but also for Paul himself. I mean, I don't know exactly what Paul was going through, but I, I can kind of imagine when, when I was in, when I was a youth back way back in the day when I was a Baptist, we would always go to church camp and there would always be something that I would call kind of the church camp syndrome. Uh, a few students would go to church camp. They would have this, this deep religious experience and then they would come back 
and after a few days, it was like as if nothing happened. I, I experienced this too when, when I became a Christian, when I was converted. I had seen this church camp experience before, and I, I would ask the question, is it real? Am I really a different person? God doesn't just leave it to ourselves to figure this out. He provides for us different witnesses. The text that we just read is going to reveal three witnesses to us. Good works, the church of Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We're not going to look at all three of these today. Today we're just going to look at good works. Next week, we will, next week we will look at the church's witness and the spirit's witness. But this morning, I want us to kind of focus in looking at the works of Paul, looking at the good works that he did, looking at the good works that we do so that we can see how good works witness, bear witness, show evidence of the faith that dwells within us. Let's begin by looking at the work of Paul, particularly focusing in on verses 20 and 22. And immediately, Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, if you go down a couple of paragraphs, you'll see Paul doing essentially the same thing there in Jerusalem. But what is it that he is doing exactly? Two things. Two works of the apostle Paul. First, he is preaching. Secondly, he is confounding. Another way that we can maybe think of that is he is doing the work of an apologist. An apologist is someone who goes in and defends the truth of Christianity or they attack the false truths of some other worldview. He is both preaching and he is doing the work of an apologist. But what is the content of these works? How exactly does he go about doing this? Listen to, uh, so uh, when it comes to his preaching, the summary content of that word that he preaches summarized in this, Jesus is the Son of God. That is not a manuscript of every sermon that Paul preached, but it is a summary of it. That should be the summary of any sermon that has ever been preached. Jesus is the Son of God. The man, Jesus, is the divine Son, the divine Logos. The content of the gospel is not an improved life. It's not an improved marriage. It's not an improved parenthood. The gospel is not an idea. The gospel is a person who was born of a woman who lived righteously and yet suffered for it, even suffered unto the point of death. And then he was raised from the dead, and now he reigns on high. That is the gospel. It is a person who was crucified and yet now reigns. It is Jesus Christ. And the content of Paul's apologetics is not much different. It is summarized in these words. Jesus was the Christ. Now, we had to put this word in its context. There in, there in verses 20 and 22, who is he ministering to? 
It is the Jews who lived in Damascus. And so if you were trying to share the gospel with a Jew, well, the Jews were the people of the Old Testament. The word Christ means messianic king from the line of David. What, how Paul uh, uh, did the work of an apologist amongst the Jews was he opened up his Old Testament. He said, Jesus is the son of David, the king, the suffering servant, the stump of Jesse, the Messiah, the son of man. He proved that Jesus was the one who they had been looking for. And he's going to do this later on in the book of Acts when he goes to Athens. But there he's not going to be ministering to Jews. He's going to be ministering to, to, to pagans, to Gentiles. And you know how he's going to do the work of an apologist there? He's not going to apply to the Old Testament. He's going to appeal to Greek philosophy. He's going to appeal to Greek poetry and Greek art and even Greek idolatry, particularly the statue made to the unknown God. And you know what he does? The same thing he did to the Jews. What you've been looking for is right here. It is Jesus Christ. This is the heart of Christian apologetics. Everyone is looking for something. Many of us are looking for the right things. We're just looking for it in the wrong places. We are looking for love. We are looking for hope. We are looking for peace. We are looking for comfort and assurity. But we're all looking for it in the wrong place. What the Christian apologist does is we come and we say, we take their heads and say, you're looking for this here. And that's good that you're looking for that. But here, let me show you where you'll actually find it. It is in Christ Jesus. You're not looking for the love of a woman, the love of a man, the love of a son, the love of a daughter. You are looking for the love of God, and that is found in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. That is the work of apologetics. And so you see in the, work, the content of the work of the Apostle Paul, you see, the, you see that what he is doing has at its heart and has as its goal the glory of Jesus Christ by, by the heart of of his, by, by Jesus being the heart of his work, what I mean by that is that it was Jesus, his love for Christ and Christ's love for him that was driving everything that he did, driving his work, driving his ministry. He was not driven by comfort or, or money or the acceptance of others. He was driven by the love of Christ. The only time a person will ever be able to let go of the treasures and the comforts of this world is when he has found a treasure that is beyond this world, a treasure that sits at the right hand of God, the treasure of Jesus Christ. How can we let go of the comforts of this world when we have a comfort that is found in another world? And so Christ was the heart of Paul's work, but he was also the goal of Christ's work. And it is here that we see the life and worth of a true servant in any respect. Servants do not serve their own interests. It's, it's kind of like, like offensive linemen in football. If you're like a pass rusher and you're really good, your name gets very famous. You know, Micah Parsons, Miles Garrett, Reggie White, something like that. But if you're an offensive lineman, it doesn't work that way. If you're not very good at your job, your name gets very well known, very quickly. But if you're very good at your job, your quarterback's name becomes known. Your running back's name becomes known. Your receiver's name becomes known. That's your job. 
to promote the work of something else, to promote the glory of someone else. That is our goal in life. Our goal in life is not to have our glories proclaimed, but to have the glory of Christ proclaimed. It says, I can't do it any, now I've quoted this before, but it cannot be put any better. The words of Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the goal of the Christian life is to preach the gospel, to die and be forgotten. That is the goal of our life. That is the goal of our work, to work for someone else, to die and be okay with being forgotten. So long as my Savior's name is proclaimed, so long as the cross of Christ shines throughout time, I'm good. Let me become nothing. Let me become worthless so that he might become glorified in the sight of his people and the sight of the world. When we do good works, we bear witness to the fact that Christ's love dwells in us and that he is our highest end. He is our highest goal. So the character of Paul, Paul's work is no different than the character of our own work, or at least it shouldn't be any different. You want, you want a goal for Christian living. Let the love of Christ motivate your work. Let his glory be the end of your work. That should be true of every one of us in here, just as it was true of the Apostle Paul. But here's where it gets kind of sticky. Our work does not look like the work of Paul necessarily. No one in here is called to be an apostle. I think just maybe, maybe just one of us has been called to be a pastor. Maybe somebody else in here has too. They haven't just come into it yet. Not all of us have the same gifts. Not all, and because of that, not all of us have the same works. So what is the work that we should be doing? What is the work of the Christian? This is the second point today, the work of the Christian. We've just seen the work of Paul. What is the work of the Christian? There's a reason why our works are not all the same. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the reason why our works differ from one another is because our gifts are different. Listen to what he writes. All our gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit. So it's all coming from the same place. The Spirit, who apportions each one individually as he wills. The gifts that you have are not the gifts that you chose. They were the gifts that you were given. And they were given by the sovereign Spirit, who gave them to you because someone around you needs that gift in their life. You have something that they do not have. I want to give you the list of the gifts of the Spirit that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12. First of all, I don't want to spend much time on this, but it needs a little explanation. There is the gift of prophesying. When we we hear that, we immediately think like fortune-telling, predicting the future. That's not what Paul is saying here. By prophesying, he doesn't mean the predicting of the future. In the Old Testament, when prophets are predicting the future, they're predicting one future in particular— the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus has come. His work is accomplished. His work is complete. What is there left to predict? Yes, he is going to come again, but in a twinkling of an eye, as a thief comes in the night, it is going to be unexpected. That's as much prophecy as you need on the return of Christ. He will return. You just don't see it coming. 
Listen to what the author of Hebrews, how he begins the book. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, past tense. Spoke to our prophets by the, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You know his son, if you have this book. So what, is, what does Paul mean by the gift of prophecy? There's one type of prophecy that we need. The explanation and the application of this, of this prophecy, the word of God. I think he's talking about preaching. And I'm not alone in that. John Calvin, many Reformed, and not even just Reformed, Methodists, Baptists, theologians and pastors understand it the same way. You need the preaching of the word. Somebody has to preach the word of God. Therefore, he must give certain gifts to those people so that they might perform that work. The next gift that he gives in Romans 12 is the gift of service. This is a very general term, preparing meals for the needy, picking someone's medicine up, visiting the sick, keeping the babies in the nursery so that their parents can actually hear the sermon, cutting grass for the elderly, cleaning up after events, playing music, many such things. Then there are the gifts of teaching, like in Sunday school and VBS, the gift of encouragement, the gift of generosity, acts of mercy, but what do all of these have in common? All of these gifts are not given to serve the individual who has the gift. They are all given so that someone else might be served. That's not how we usually give gifts. That's not how I give gifts. When I give, when I give, uh, I have a, uh, I have a uh, friend back in the day. His dad would always give him presents that his dad wanted. If his dad wanted a new fishing pole, guess what his son got? A new fishing pole. I think, I, think one, I think one year he got like a car part uh, for like th- his dad needed or something like that. I don't give my wife gifts like that. I don't give her like, like, oh, you know what? She needs a new smoker. No, she doesn't need a new smoker. I need a new smoker. That's not how we give gifts, but that is how the spirit gives gifts. He gives you something so that you can turn around and give it to somebody else. And there's a reason for that. It's because they proceed from him. They proceed from the spirit and they reflect his character. The Spirit's ministry is not about himself. We talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago. In the, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus tells us that he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will bear witness of Christ. That's what the Spirit does. And the gifts that he gives do the same thing. They bear witness to Jesus Christ. Our good works are sourced from the Holy Spirit who gives as he sees fit. But in order to have these gifts, we must have the Spirit And the one who has the Spirit is the one who has been truly converted. These gifts, our working these gifts, are a witness to the hope and the truth that dwells within us. And this is the main point that I want you to see this morning. The necessity of good works in the Christian life. They are necessary. But the question is, what are they necessary for? Roman Catholics believe that they are necessary for our justification, meaning that they are necessary for our right standing before God. Some of my um, Protestant brethren believe that this has become a secondary issue, a a, a difference of, of mere semantics. I could not disagree more. It is the gospel that is at stake in this. We are justified. We are right before God. 
not because we blend our good works with the perfect work of Christ. If you take something that is perfect and you put anything else into it, is it perfect anymore? No. To mix my works with the works of Christ is like mixing ice with fire. The two will destroy each other. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were achieved by works of the law, then Christ has died for no purpose. My works cannot mix with the works of Christ. My works are far too low, and his works are far too wonderful and far too beautiful, far too perfect for me to ever attempt to mix something that I have done, even with the best of intentions, with his perfect and complete work. It would be to nullify his grace. Righteousness, justification, is not achieved by works of the law. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. So why are they necessary? Why do Protestants, Presbyterians, Methodists, most Baptists, I've met some who don't believe this, but most Baptists believe that works are necessary in the Christian life. It's for this reason. They are necessary as evidences of grace. They are evidences. They are not the work of salvation, but they are evidences, witnesses, proofs that salvation has taken place. The fruit that is created by a tree is not the tree itself, yet those fruit... Uh, but, but, but yet those fruits are, uh, must be consistent with the nature of the tree. They must be consistent with the nature of a tree. If you say, I have an apple tree out back and I go out there and it's producing peaches, you don't have an apple tree. You, don't have a, you, don't have a, you have a peach tree. The same, listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from brambles. Just as you should expect to feel heat where there is fire, so it is that you should also expect to see good works where there is a Christian. Where there is a Christian, there will always be good works somewhere surrounding that Christian, coming from that Christian. Now, it's here that I want to move on to our third point here because there are some dangers, some, some warnings about good works that we need to apply here in regards to how they work in, in the Christian's life. The first danger of our understanding of good works is that um, uh, the, danger, it's the danger of not producing any works whatsoever. There are many Christians who kind of look at the church as being nothing more than a, a lecture hall, a social club that you pop into every now and then to kind of sit passively by. Church is not a jelly of the month club. Church membership is not a jelly of the month club where you just sign up for it and then you get to go home and then sweets get delivered to your door every month. It's something you have to be a part of. 
Why? Because you need the church, but the church needs you. There's a danger in not working. If there is no word, there is no fruit. And as Jesus goes and he sees the fruitless fig tree, what does he do? He curses the fig tree and it withers and it dies. The Christian life should be one of fervent obedience. Listen to what Thomas Watson says on this. Christian obedience must be fervent as water boils over, so the heart must boil over with hot affections in the service of God. Obedience without fervency is like a sacrifice without fire. I love that imagery. A sacrifice without fire. Imagine an Old Testament sacrifice minus the fire. What is it? It's just a dead, lifeless rotting animal on a hot rock it's not bringing god any glory and it's not doing anybody else any good so is a christian life without works it is a dead lifeless rotting animal that doesn't do you any good doesn't do anybody else any good and doesn't bring god any glory that is a grave warning it is a grave sin to confess what you do not live out. But there's another danger, and it's on the opposite end of the spectrum, the danger of trying to do every good work. Here's the thing. You can't do every good work. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that you are a member of the body of Christ. You are not the member. You yourself are not the members. There's not one member. There are many members. You don't have to do everything. Rest, peace, those are things that should be involved in the Christian life. If you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off trying to do everything, that's not a virtue. That is a sin. You're sinning by doing that. First of all, you're robbing somebody else of their service. Step out of the way. Let somebody else serve God with the gifts that they have been given. It also shows discontentment. It can show discontentment with where you are. You might be thinking, well, God has me serving here in this particular area of the church life, and, well, I would rather be serving over there. Maybe one day God will call you over there, but right now he has you where you are because that's where you're needed, and that's where your gifts are needed. It also shows discontentment with the gifts that we have. We might say, well, I mean, the gifts that I have, I, I just, I mean... I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm really doing a whole lot. I, I, would rather, I would rather do this, and then we kind of throw ourselves into that. But when we do that, when we serve outside of our lane, so to speak, when we move out of that lane, we move away from God because it is God who has given those gifts. Listen to William Grinnell and how he, says, how he puts this. He says, if we love to walk with God in God's company, we must abide in our place and calling. Every step from that is a departure from God. It is, a da- it is dangerous to do what we are not called to do. We do not find fault with an apple tree if it is laden with apples and not figs. It is an erratic spirit that carries men out of their place and calling. Our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. The gifts that you have been given, they are sufficient because they come from an all-sufficient God. Now, I want to finish on a note of encouragement because I know in both of those spots there can be a lot of discouragement. I'm not 
I'm not just preaching to you here. I'm, I'm preaching to myself. There's a class of Christian, I think that most of us are probably included, that fall in between the not doing anything and trying to do everything crowd. And we're usually left asking the question, have we done enough? Well, what do you mean by enough? Have you done enough to earn the favor of God? No. Be perfect as your father is. is be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. You have not achieved that. But here's the good news. Even though our good works are a good witness to the hope and the faith that is within us, they are not the primary source of our assurance. They are not the grounds of our assurance. The grounds of the assurance is not even something that proceeds from us, but it is something that comes to us in a word. The promises of of God. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the grounds for your assurance. The promise that has proceeded from the one who can not lie. Our heavenly Father, Assurance seems to be rare. Confusion seems to be the going rate. Father, but you are not a God of confusion. You are a God of peace. You are a God who calls us to have assurance. Father, I pray that we would be able to produce good works that can serve that assurance in some way. But as we'll see next week, I pray most especially that what we have done today, that your, the preaching of your word, our singing and our prayers, that all of these things are, would be known to be graces that have proceeded from you, all of which bring with them the certificate of our adoption into the household of God. Father, may we come into possession of that certificate. May we know it well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.